All right, we come now to Hebrews chapter 7. If you'll be turning there. Back in chapter 5, you'll remember there was more author wanted to say about the priestly order of Melchizedek, but he can't say it. Why? He couldn't continue because his recipients were not prepared to hear it. And so over the past eight weeks, we've looked at why. We've looked at this digression to see uh, the author's concerns. And there is a spiritual dullness and a lack of growth and inability to teach. And there's just not listening and understanding. And so this author says, listen, this is a problem. And there are both warnings and blessings or encouragements that flow out of what he writes there. Both warnings that... Take this seriously. There is a danger here because if you recognize what all has been argued through the beginning of this letter, you recognize that you're in danger if you walk away from the revelation of this truth. But there's also encouragements. If you are in Christ, if you are His, we have steadfast promises from God Himself. They are unchangeable. They are unmovable. They are anchored with Him eternally. And so we have an encouragement in the face of challenge and persecution and opposition that we can stand secure because that anchor is immovable. It is there behind the veil, sure and steady. So having warned and exhorted as he has done, our author is ready to return to the argument that he was making in chapter 5 about the priesthood of Christ and its importance really to us. And I've said Hebrews really focuses on <coughs> excuse me, the priesthood of Christ Uh, Because so much of the rest of the scriptures talk about him as our perfect sacrifice and our mediator. But here, specifically, a mediator in terms of his priesthood. And so it's important to look at this. So uh, having gotten back to this point and having set the stage, let's look here at what it says about Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, the one of whom we're speaking, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom... It is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now this is a passage we are familiar with. It's a passage that we've looked at many times. Probably once a year we look at the figure of Melchizedek and the incarnation of Christ and how central to our understanding of Scripture that it is. And today we want to recap this larger section of ten verses by looking at two points. First of all, the significance of Melchizedek, an incredibly significant figure in biblical history. And second of all, the greatness of Melchizedek. And so we want to begin to look at that. So beginning first with the idea of the significance of Melchizedek, we want to look at the fact that this figure is intriguing. He's mysterious. And yet he's of great importance to biblical theology. This author takes three verses from Genesis and one verse from Psalm 110 and then exposits 
a significant amount on that to say, look how significant this figure is. And even where there are things lacking in the text, so to speak, there are details not given to us, this author argues it's intentional, that the Holy Spirit intentionally did not give us those details for an important reason. And so we need to look at that. So again, three verses in Genesis, one verse in Psalm 110, and yet a towering figure in biblical theology. Now, uh, since this section that we're looking at today refers back to Genesis, you see that right off the bat? It places the, the discussion here as when Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, blessed him. So that's Genesis chapter 14. So if you have your Bible, turn there. We want to look at uh, this narrative. It's important for us to see what's being said here. Now, you'll remember, we've talked about this many times. In those days, there were city-states and kings. There was a king of Sodom, a king of Gomorrah. If there was a city, it had a king. And there were title kings. These were kings that had accumulated power over other kings. So they represented many kings. And all those kings and cities paid tribute to them. And so we read of one like that, of one named Kedaliomar. He was a powerful title king. He ruled over a, a large territory, and all those kings were paying him tribute. But, we read in the text, for 12 years, Sodom and Gomorrah, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, had paid tribute unto Ketaliomar. But in the last year, the 13th year, they said, no more. We're not going to pay it any longer. And so in the 13th year, they rebelled, the text says. Now, Ketaliomar brings the other kings that are paying tribute to him. He gathers them together, and he says, let's go crush these who are now rebelling against our authority. And so that's what the Scriptures tell us. It says in verse 8 of chapter 14, And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zoboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle at the valley of Sedim against Ketaliomar, king of Elam, title king of nations. What a title, right? The title king over the nations. It's kind of a pompous uh, title that he's given himself. But Amraphael, the king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elassar. Now these are the other kings that are with him. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. They've gotten away trying to find safety. So then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother, son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Marm, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the men, excuse me, as the women and the people. Those are those who had been captured. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Ketaliomar and the kings who were with him. Now, there's the narrative of how the battle went, right? Ketaliomar and his kings were with him, defeat these rebel kings, and they take all their goods and they, they go away. And now Abraham goes out, Abram at this point, goes out to basically get back Lot. That's his motive. 
but he also gets back the wealth and all that they had taken and frees the other people who were taken captive out of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding region. So that's what the narrative tells us. But then all of a sudden, this amazing little break, if you will, in the story comes. And we see here in verse 18, this figure of Melchizedek appears. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, meaning Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. Important detail. Now we're going to read just the rest of the chapter to get the rest of the story together. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Give me back my citizens and you can keep all the wealth that you've gotten in this battle. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is of yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, and Er, Eshkol, and Marm. Let them take their portion. Now, this is the narrative that our author is referring to today. And you can see that again right in the first verse where he says that these events happened when Abram, or Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings encountered Melchizedek. So that's where we begin with. And this author says there are many things in this text. These three short verses, there are many details. In fact, I think we should start by saying if you were just reading the narrative of Genesis through just reading right in your armchair, you might skip right over these three verses. I don't mean not read them, but not recognize the significance of them. You might just continue through the narrative and not even consider this mysterious figure who comes. But this author says, when you look at that text rightly, there are a plethora of important details that you should not miss. And so what are they? Well, first of all, he immediately focuses on the fact that Melchizedek is a king. He is a king. Now, there's no shortage of kings in the Scriptures, is there? There's kings everywhere in the Scripture. So that by itself is not significant, but there are some things that need to be said about this king. First of all, He's the king of Salem. And geographically, we know that is placed where? Jerusalem. Psalm 76 says this. Asaph declares, In Judah God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is His tabernacle and His dwelling place in Zion. So again, there's even a biblical reference, but we know Salem or Salem eventually became Jerusalem, the city of Salem. And this is, of course, eventually uh, it's named Jerusalem. So again, we've got this king connected to a very important biblical city of Jerusalem. But also notice that that means his name is the king of Salem or the king of peace. That's an interesting designation unto its own, isn't it? The king of peace. We could make an argument here, this author is going to, that a king of peace or a king that would be connected to peace would also be connected to righteousness. We don't have to establish that. He will himself in the text in just a moment. So those are two important facts. But there's something else that we shouldn't miss that is truly unique in one sense about this king in the biblical narrative, and that's that it also says that he is a priest. Notice right in the very first verse, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest. Now you might push back and say there's no shortage of king priests in history, and there isn't. Caesar himself declared that he was a king priest, didn't he? He was, Kaiser, he was king, he was 
ruler over his lands, and he was also the Pontifex Maximus. He was the high or chief priest. Caesar declared that about himself. So did many pagan kings. They declared themselves both king and priest, or even high priest. But there is something this text wants us to note about Melchizedek that's different. He isn't a pagan. It says that he is priest of the Most High God, El Elyon, the Most High God. And he recognizes that Abraham is also a servant of the Most High God. That's again in Genesis where he blesses him. So again, we notice there is something interesting. And when you look at that, there is a shortage of king priests who serve and worship the one true living God, El Elyon, the Most High God. There aren't very many of those, are there? So immediately that should get our attention. Who is this mysterious figure? Where did he come from? Why is it declaring of him that he is a king and priest of the Most High God? So again, those are details that should, we should recognize as rare. But again, it tells us something else about him as we just continue tracking through the text. It says that he is the king of righteousness. Now where does that come from? Well, literally his name. Melech Sedas, it means something like king of righteousness. It's the words for king and righteous. And again, we come back to this. It is the king of righteousness, and he is also the king of peace. Those are connected, and we could uh, turn to a number of places to think about this. But again, God establishes peace for his righteous kings. Now, I think that's telling us he's a king who's living at a time of peace, in a place of peace. He's a king of righteousness. But again, we know there's more significance than that. Because he is a type of Christ who is the king of peace and is the king of righteousness. So all of those things are things that we should recognize in that short narrative of three verses in Genesis. But my friends, there is more than that even, isn't there, that he wants us to recognize. I mean, it seems significant in and of itself what we've already looked at. The king of righteousness, the king of peace, connected to Salem, a king and priest. All of these things are significant. But there's also some details that are not mentioned in the text. Not mentioned in the text. And this is kind of an interesting thing to think about because uh, why would we make significance of things that aren't mentioned? And yet this author does and says it's no uh, small matter that they're left out. It's not by accident. It's the intention of the Holy Spirit who inspired Moses to write this text that there are some things that are not said about Melchizedek. And they're important because they establish him being a type of Christ. What do we mean by that? Well, look at verse 3. It says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, that is a strange thing to say of a person who is declared to be a man. Verse 4, now consider how great this man was. Now, we know Christ, you could say uh, some things about having no, neither beginning of days. But again, we would say in, in the person, his personhood, uh, we've got to speak differently. But again, this is a man of whom it is said, without father, without mother, without genealogy. What does this author mean? Well, he's speaking here in shadowy language, isn't he? He's speaking here of Melchizedek as a type. It says he has no father. There's no father mentioned in Genesis for Melchizedek. This is a book that is full of genealogies, full of who begat who, right? Now, it seems pretty clear interpretively that Melchizedek is not the pre-incarnate Christ. We can say that because, again, it wouldn't make sense for the author to deal with him comparing them this way and saying that he is a type of himself. That wouldn't make sense. 
So again, to say he's without father, what do we mean? We mean simply the text doesn't give the name of a father. It doesn't give the name of a mother. In a book of genealogies, there is no genealogy that includes this man. Melchizedek enters the stage of history with nothing said of him before and nothing said of him after. And this author says it's as if then he has no father. He has no mother. He has no what? Beginning. He has no beginning. And that's what it literally says. Having neither the beginning of days, no origin, no place of beginning in his life story, nor is there a place of his end of life. Nowhere do we read that Melchizedek died. Nowhere do we read that he was buried. Nowhere do we read it at all. Though being a man, we can assume it. But this author says the text doesn't give it to us, and it doesn't give it to us for a very important reason. As a type of Christ, he has no beginning and he has no end. Why? Because there is no one who came before him as priest, and there is no one who came after him as priest. His priesthood is eternal. This priesthood is eternal. Now, where do we get that? It's given to us in that very same verse. But made like the Son of God. Who made him to look like the Son of God? God did. The Holy Spirit, inspiring this text, left out those details so you'd see this type, this picture, that he is like the Son of God. He is not the Son of God, but he is appearing like the Son of God in this sense as a type of Christ. In what way? No beginning, no end, no successor to follow after him. The entire point this author is trying to make about the superiority of the priesthood that Christ has is that there is no one to succeed him. That which comes last is greatest. That which has no successor is greatest. And that's his point here. Aaron, Levi, the Levitical priesthood has successor after successor after successor. Christ rules and reigns and intercedes and mediates on our behalf forevermore perfectly because he is the perfect high priest. And we know we need that. We know we need that. Why? But what would be the purpose of Psalm 110 if that isn't true? What would be the purpose of saying that the Messiah will be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, if the Levitical priesthood was enough? What would be the purpose? We have to have this perfect priesthood that is offered only in Christ, pictured in Melchizedek, the Melchizedekian priesthood. So he's given us all these things. There is no successor. Christ is the one who lives out this eternal priesthood pictured in Melchizedek. And so seeing that, that brings us to our second point this morning, the greatness of Melchizedek. So he's given us a type of Christ. All these details are given to us that we might understand a little better the priesthood of Christ. No beginning, no end, no successor. He intercedes on our behalf perfectly forever. That sure and steady anchor behind the veil is secure because there's no one after him. There's no one to come and say, I don't like the deal. I'm going to change it up. Christ will reign and will intercede on our behalf perfectly forevermore. But this text also makes clear the greatness of Melchizedek. His priesthood is great. All we'd have to do, by the way, is look at those three verses in Genesis to begin to get the clues that he's giving us for why this is. But first, verse 4 drives this home. He says, now consider how great this man was. Melchizedek, how great he was. Why? It says, to whom even the patriarch, Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. I want you to think for a moment about that. It says, even Abraham. Now to a a Hebrew recipient of this letter, that's powerful language. Abraham was up there, right? Up there with Moses in terms of revering these Old Testament leaders. 
Abraham was the patriarch. Notice, the patriarch. There are many patriarchs, but he is the patriarch. He is the one that God chose and called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He is the one that he gave the promises to. In fact, it says that in this text, that he blessed him who had the promises. Those promises were given to Abraham. They weren't given to Lot, right? They were given to Abraham. Now, others received the benefits of those promises, but they were given to Abraham. And that's the point. And even the patriarch, Father Abraham, recognized the greatness of Melchizedek. How great this man, whom even Abraham gave a tithe to, a tenth of the spoils. So it establishes immediately, immediately, that there is a principle here that Abraham himself recognized the greater nature or the greater state, if you will, of Melchizedek. He is greater than Abraham because Abraham recognized it and paid a tithe to him. That's significant. There's another sense in which it's clear, established here, uh, that Abraham recognized the greater uh, state of Melchizedek. And it says it right here. There's a principle given to us in verse 7. It's a principle, it says, is without debate or contradiction. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. It says that's not a, a point we can even argue. There's no point in arguing. There is no contention or contradiction on this. It is a fact the lesser is blessed by the better. And Abraham received a blessing from Melchizedek. He didn't reject it. He didn't say, you have no right to try to bless me. Do you not know who I am? I am God's chosen man. I am the person he called out of Ur of the Chaldees. No, he says, I recognize there's something great about Melchizedek. And Abraham received the blessing. And again, we looked at that in Genesis. But again, it says, blessed be Abram of God most high. So in receiving that blessing and not rejecting, Abraham recognized the greater state or the greater uh, position of Melchizedek. So this author says, we've already established then Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. There's no debate about it. No possibility of debate about it. And that alone is a powerful argument for any Hebrew Christian that Abraham is not as great as Melchizedek. But there's something else said here that is an important detail. He says he's greater than the Levitical priesthood. Greater than the Levitical priesthood. Now we've basically mentioned this here and there along the way, but now he wants to establish it for you beyond question. What does he say? He says this, Levi receives tithes. Levi was given a priesthood, and the descendants of Levi were given a priesthood, an important fact, a priesthood of great importance, given to him by God, given to his successors by God. And in that priesthood, there was a commandment given that he could receive tithes from people according to law. It was lawful. In fact, it was necessary, according to law, to give a tithe. And Levi received those tithes. But notice who they came from. It says they came from a people according to the law, that is, from their own brethren. Their own brethren. What does he mean by this? Levi, as a son of Abraham received tithes from the other sons of Abraham. Now, if you understand biblical logic, particularly like this author is using, that's like Abraham tithing to Abraham. One son of Abraham tithing to another son of Abraham. Both were once in the loins of Abraham. That's like Abraham tithing to himself. In other words, there is no recognition of one greater than the other in this sense. But notice what he goes on to say. This is very important. He says, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them. 
In other words, who has a whole separate genealogy that we know nothing of, one who did not come from the line of Abraham, one who Abraham has already recognized as greater, received tithes from Abraham himself. So in other words, if the Levitical priesthood pictures the sons of Abraham giving to the sons of Abraham or tithing to the sons of Abraham, that's not greater than Abraham. That's within Abraham's loins. But here, Abraham tithed to one who was outside of him and greater than him. Now, what does this author say we should take from this? Look at what he says. Verse 9. Even Levi, right, the Levitical priesthood, who receives tithes from his brethren, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. How? For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. In other words, if Levi receives tithes from his brother, another son of Abraham, that's one thing. But in this picture, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek because he was in his father Abraham. This is a very Jewish argument. But it's established here as biblically true that it establishes even Levi recognizes the exceeding greatness of Melchizedek's priesthood. Now, that is of great importance to us because what it means is Levitical priesthood is not the end-all and be-all, nor was it ever intended to be the end-all or be-all. It was established for a time and for a purpose. And Melchizedek came before that happened, before the law was given, came in the days of Abraham. And Melchizedek is held out in Genesis and especially in Psalm 110 as a greater priesthood. It does not say of the Messiah that you will be a priest forever or temporarily, either way, according to the order of Levi. It says you will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, meaning the Bible is set out from the very beginning that there is a greater priesthood pictured in Melchizedek, a Melchizedekian priesthood which is eternal and effective. It's perfect. And Christ is its high priest. And so again, all of that is to show us the exceeding greatness of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And if that's established, then the point becomes immediately clear in the text. Immediately clear what this author is trying to say. How can you return to the Levitical priesthood if you understand the Melchizedekian priesthood? How can you return to a priesthood that is neither effective nor eternal if you realize that Melchizedek and the priesthood he pictures fulfilled in Christ is effective and eternal? How can you do that? It would be the height of folly to do so. Now, what does this text say to us? I don't think any of us are in this boat, right? We're not uh, Hebrew Christians that are struggling with the idea maybe we'll go back to the synagogue. Maybe we'll say, you know, let's go back to the Levitical priesthood. What does this text say to us? Well, one thing I think it says, there's two things I want us to think about really quick this morning. First, it reminds us to recognize the exceeding glory and greatness of Christ and that all the scriptures point to Him. All the scriptures, even these Three little verses that you might have skipped over if you were reading through Genesis 14. Even these three verses, if you consider them carefully and rightfully, will lead you to understand the glory and greatness of Christ, particularly His priesthood and how it's different than the priesthood that is spoken of throughout most of the Old Testament that establishes even here there is a greater priesthood that is to be considered. And so we don't want to... uh, We don't want to miss that. We want to recognize the greatness and glory and efficacy of our great high priest and the eternal nature of what he is accomplishing. 
But it also reminds us to be careful when reading the text. There are so many times that we get this where the New Testament interpretation of a passage in the Old Testament reminds us, be very careful. Be very careful. This is clearly one, right? Three verses in Genesis, one verse in Psalm 110, and an entire argument here given to us in Hebrews expositing that. But there are others, right? We've talked about this before. When the Sadducees challenged Jesus on the resurrection, they didn't believe in a resurrection. When they say, uh, we're going to give you a little word play here that's going to throw you off. You won't be able to defend the resurrection. And they ask him about a woman who uh, her husband dies and she marries his brother and then he dies and marries his brother, on and on and on. He says, they ask Jesus, whose wife will she be in eternity? In the resurrection, if it's true, whose wife would she be? They're mocking the doctrine, and they're also mocking the law of Moses, which, which gave that as a, as a mercy to widows. And Jesus says, let me ask you a question. Why did God in the burning bush say that he is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob? Why didn't he say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He spoke as if they yet lived. So Jesus establishes the resurrection on the tense of a verb in the Old Testament scriptures. And again, we need to recognize how carefully we need to read our Bibles. And this is a reminder again, because here's one of the greatest pictures of Christ in the Old Testament, the shadow, the the type that is given to us in Melchizedek. And it's three verses. Don Carson, many years ago, said you could take those three verses out and they would read just fine. Thank goodness God gave those to us graciously as a picture of Christ. But you could easily skip over them and not realize the significance. So be careful when we read the Word of God. But we also want to remember ever to give praise and glory to our amazing High Priest and King, Jesus Christ. I was reading a a hymn the other day, and I think we'll be singing it sometime soon. Here's what it says. Jesus, the Savior, reigns the God of truth and love. When He had purged our sins, He took His seat above. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. My friends, what this author wants us to recognize is if we understand what Moses was telling us, what can we do except rejoice? In the Savior and King and High Priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, promised by God and fulfilled in His precious Son, our Lord. Jesus Christ.